I'm going to echo it again. Last night was fantastic. It was a, a lot of fun. Thank you again to all who, who planned it, who put all the work beforehand, and thank you for all who came out. Uh, Casey, Sawyer, and I we were able to be a part of the singers, which was a, a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We sang a bunch of different songs. Janie did a fantastic job picking the songs and, and leading. Uh, one of the songs we sang, which I think, I'm not the, per- the best with Christmas songs, but one of the ones we sung was, O Come All Ye Faithful. And one of the lines goes like this, O come and behold him, born the king of angels. And this morning, the passage that, that AJ just read for us, the, a few of the disciples beheld the glory of Jesus Christ in the transfiguration. They saw an absolute glorious sight. Phenomenal. Unique. That they were able to see. And they beheld the glory of the Son of God. And it's interesting to consider beholding glory. And, and that may seem foreign to us. Like as you sit there in the pew thinking this morning about beholding glory. That might seem kind of distant. Like what does that even, how does that even compute? But I'll propose to you this morning that each of us, each one of us, we desire to behold glory. We want it. We want to see it. We love glorious images of nature. I haven't really seen many mountains. But when you see a picture of a mountain, or at least when I see a picture of a mountain, maybe when you've seen an actual mountain, it's absolutely glorious. It is so majestic. It just, it's, uh, it's weighty. It's just so heavy that there's a, a massive mountain. Or the Grand Canyon. Never saw it. Saw pictures. Looks awesome. You seem so small. It's so big. It's so weighty. So glorious. It's like looking at pictures of the universe. When we see how big the sun is. How small we are. How, how glorious it all is just spread out in the universe. Or we desire glory. It's that impulse within us. That loves to see an underdog upset the defending champions. We love that. A, a, a glorious a football game, a glorious game, whatever that looks like, where in the last seconds they throw uh, 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 the last touchdown that completely changed the whole game, and they win, and the fans are running on the field, and there's just such an elect- uh, electrifying in the in the atmosphere, and there's just such glory. This is fantastic. This is phenomenal. Or it's like the movies that we watch that that has so much risk, love, war. Uh, it's glory. There's glorious in it. We're not. Where men go into a, a battlefield, into a war, and they know they'll probably lose because they're way outnumbered, but they go nonetheless to meet the enemy. It, it's, it's this glorious picture of glory, and we love it. We desire to see it. We desire to behold glory. I've titled this sermon, You Become What You Behold. You Become What You Behold. And I, I grabbed this. This is not new with me, not even close. I grabbed this from Paul. In 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he gives us this principle of beholding. He writes this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. As we behold Christ, we're becoming like Christ. We become what we behold. Or put in other words, we become what we worship. We become what we trust in. We become what we put all our hope in, what we're, we're banking on, what we're relying on. We become what we behold. So either 
you're becoming more and more like Christ as you behold him, as you worship him, as everything you trust in him, or you're becoming like something else. If you worship money and you're so focused on money, you become more and more greedy and stingy as you become more like what you behold. If you worship acceptance and popularity, you become more and more anxious and fearful as you're looking for this. If you worship what the world defines as success, as you behold it, that's what you're, you're trusting in, you become more and more busy and restless. If you behold social media and you, you're hoping that this is, this is where it's at, you become superficial and more centered on what others think of you. If you behold pornography, your sexuality becomes more and more cheap and you become empty. If you behold and worship such things as hobbies and entertainment as this is, this is it. This is where all my hope is. This is what I'm looking in. You become less focused, less purposeful. You lose meaning. You lose, lose any kind of sense of purpose. But when you behold Christ, you become Christ-like. And so this morning, we, we see, uh, as we study this account of the transfiguration, we behold, may we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, as, as A.J. was talking about, the glory of the Son of God. And let us consider, we'll see within this, that, that discipleship is a part of beholding. Of beholding Christ through His Word, listening and obeying Him. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We are continuing in our study of Luke. If you recall, so Luke chapter 9, verse 28 is what we'll be starting in. And if you recall, last week we studied the passage where Jesus says that he will suffer. It is necessary. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die and he must be raised. And then he calls his followers, the apostles then, you and me today, he calls them to come, die to self, pick up your cross, and follow me. And it was a heavy message to you and me to, of, of denying self, dying to self. But then soon after, about a week goes by, and then Jesus manifests his, his glory and his transfiguration. And, and just from the beginning, what, what an encouragement. They were just hearing how he's going to die, he's going to suffer, and then they hear, I must die, and I must suffer in different ways in order to follow him. And it's kind of be discouraged. I hear it's like, this is going to be tough. But then you see this absolute glory from Christ. And it's an encouragement for us this morning as we go through the week, as we work in our jobs, as we pay bills, as we go to school, as we work hard, whatever we're doing. It's an encouragement that this is Jesus Christ, beholding his glory. And so we come to the glorious sight, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, referring to what we just saw and looked at in the last week in the passage right before, eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And so Luke sets up uh, the picture for us. He sets up the setting. Jesus only takes Peter and John and James. And we see that these these three are, are, are Jesus, his inner circle, if you will, or his, his best friends, if I can say it that way. It's his group. If if you remember when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, it was only these three that Jesus led in with the parents. Only these three, Peter, John, and James. In addition to this, the law, as it said in the, in the Torah, it says that evidence, a matter can only be confirmed by an evidence of at least two or three witnesses. 
And so we have this magnificent glory of Jesus in the transfiguration, and he picks three witnesses to come with him. He, he's got it. He's fulfilling this. And so they go up on a mountain to pray. And, and scholars, commentators are not exactly sure which mountain this is. But what is very interesting is that throughout the biblical history, our history, there's been absolutely fantastic things that have happened on mountains. To name a few, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac on a mountain uh, that God told him to do to test him. And then they have a substitute. God provides a substitute instead on the mountain, which Moses later renames as on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It was on a mountain, specifically Mount Sinai, that God meets with Moses and gives Moses the law. It was on Mount Carmel that Elijah called down fire, asked God to bring down fire on these sacrifices as God proves his sovereignty over the false god Baal. That was on Mount Carmel. Jesus preaches his probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain. And it was on a mountain that we saw back in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus went up to pray. And then after that, he came down and he chose his apostles. And so there's a fantastic line that great things happen on mountains. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, John, and James. And we see to pray once again. And you might be hearing this constant theme in Luke, prayer, prayer. And in Luke, when we see prayer, almost always something significant follows. It was after prayer, as we just saw, that Jesus picked the 12 apostles who would do fantastic things, taking, taking the gospel across the world. It was during prayer, if you look at the record in Luke 3, it was during prayer at his baptism that the Holy Spirit descends. And Luke makes sure to say it's during while he prayed. And in Acts, being Luke's second volume, one pastor says this. He says, every major move in the book of Acts comes about in response to the prayers of God's people. And you can even look as you go through Acts and you see just a tremendous work by the Spirit through Paul, through, through Peter, through whoever. Right before that, almost always, you'll see Luke kind of gives the summary and then the church gathered in prayer. The, the church gathered in prayer. The believers gathered right after and they prayed. I was just talking with uh, Joanne Lumberg this week about prayer, and we, we thought about this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. How are you doing spiritually? Look at how you're praying. That will tell you. And I can tell you right now how convicted I am when I hear that. And how much I resolve to pray even more with intensity. So in our passage, Jesus takes the three disciples and they go up on a mountain to pray. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And so Luke records, while he's praying, he, his face becomes altered or transfigured where we get the word. And his appearance and his clothing becomes dazzling white. And you may recall, there's a lot of echoes here. You may recall another man in the Bible whose face shone with, with light. You, you're probably thinking of Moses. If you remember, and this is recorded back in Exodus 34, Moses 
goes back up to Mount Sinai with two tablets of stone because he destroyed the other two. If you remember that, as you saw the sin of the Israelites, he threw them down and broke them. But he goes back up with two new tablets um, with the, the covenant written on it the second time. And when he talks with God, this is recorded in Exodus 34, when he comes back down, his face is shining. And the people would see it and, and Moses would tell him what God has said. And then afterwards he would veil his face. His face shone after he spoke with God. And then here we have Jesus, the Son of God, with this bright light coming from, from his appearance. This dazzling white, as Luke says here, and this word dazzling, uh, dazzling, what it, it means or what it's a picture of is it's a, a radiating light. It's the same word used for lightning. It is this bright emitting light. It was very intense. In one of Daniel's visions, the prophet Daniel, he describes the throne of the Ancient of Days being God himself, and he describes God's clothing as being white as snow. John, in Revelation, when he receives a revelation of Christ on the island of Patmos, he sees Jesus and he describes Jesus as his hair being white, like white, like snow, like wool. And so you get this picture of this, this force. This is someone majestic, someone glorious. This lightning, this emitting light. And his glory shone forcefully. And then verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah. So you're, you're Peter, James, and John. You go up on a mountain and pray. And then there's just absolutely glorious transfiguration of Christ. And then you see Moses and Elijah and if you're, you're Jewish, when, after we see Peter, James, John's kind of wake up. If you're Jewish, these are like the two men that you want to see. Like these are the men of the Old Testament, these great men. You've got uh, Moses, who was one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. Then you've got Elijah, one of the great prophets, one of the great prophets testifying of Jesus. And there's more. Moses, he represents uh, Jesus' prophetic office. Follow with me here. So Moses, if you remember, he was the leader when, they, when he led Israel out of Egypt. He was the leader. He was the spokesman of God as he led him out of Egypt in the Exodus. Now here's Jesus. He's the greater leader. He's the far greater leader. He's the far greater spokesman for God because he himself is God. And he is the, as, as uh, the writer of Hebrews says, he being Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it is Jesus who leads God's people in a new exodus. Peter spoke of the same thing. This is in, in Acts 3. One of the, the times uh, Peter was kind of preaching to the people. He says this. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets. That his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Here it is. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And you can hear this from our passage we'll get to. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Talking about Jesus. Moses, 
Fantastic leader. Prophetic voice from God. The leader. Now we've got someone who's far greater than Moses. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Then you've got Elijah, who is also with Moses and Jesus. And Elijah uh, represents um, the hope of the eschaton. I'm sorry. Sorry, it's going to be running to me. <laughs> awesome. All right, coming back. Uh where was I? Elijah. So you got Jesus and Moses. You have Elijah, who is the hope of the eschaton. When I use that word, that's referring to the end. If you recall, we've referred back to Malachi 4 many times. Because in Malachi 4, it's prophesied that Elijah, he will come before the end. He will come before the Messiah comes, who is bringing salvation and righteous judgment. And we've seen so far, it is John the Baptist who fulfills this Elijah figure. But Elijah himself gives this picture, represents this hope of salvation and this hope of righteous judgment in the end. And you got Jesus. He fulfills this. He's the fulfillment of this hope of salvation. He's the fulfillment of this righteous judgment. And Jesus will come again and he will uh, give righteous judgment. And so you've got the Messiah. He's here. Moses, this spokesperson, this great leader. We got someone who's far better than Moses. Moses, who led the exodus out of Egypt. We got a far greater exodus with Jesus. We got Elijah, who's this figure of hope, of righteous judgment against the evil, uh, the evil in the world and people. And we've got Jesus, who fulfills all of that. So here he is. It is Jesus who's going to die. It's Jesus who's going to be to be raised. He's, it's Jesus who's going to defeat sin and, and ultimately defeat death. And it's Jesus who will reign on his throne. And you got this majestic picture of his glory. Now, now more about this conversation between Moses and Elijah that Luke lets us in. Verse 31. Uh, who appeared and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so Luke adds that both Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. And so you got to get this picture of what happens after you die. But what's interesting is that both Moses and Elijah, if you remember, they had some very unusual endings to their life. Moses, he died, and we learn in Jude, uh, the second the last book, uh, which only one chapter, in verse 9 in Jude, we learn that Michael, the archangel, he, he fought against Satan for Moses' body. And finally, we read in Deuteronomy 34, God himself buried Moses so that no man would find his tomb. So it was kind of a very unusual ending for Moses. But there's already also an unusual ending for Elijah because he never died. He never died. He's one of two that never died in the Bible. But yet when we read in 2 Kings 2, he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind, a chariot of fire with horses of fire absolutely phenomenal i have no idea what that looked like but that is awesome i would trade our two horses for horses of fire any day no question but they they had unusual endings and so they appear in glory and they spoke with jesus of his departure which he was about to accomplish at jerusalem now the word here for departure is the it, the word actually is exodus that's the, the exact word is exodus i'm not sure why they don't put exodus but the actual word is Exodus. And you hear this, you have Moses there, remember, and you hear this echo of the, the Exodus out of Egypt. When God saved his people from slavery and then brought them to him 
and then made a covenant with them. Now you've got Jesus who's about to do a far greater act, a greater exodus. And Luke says, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And this word accomplish carries the idea of fulfill, fulfillment. He's about to fulfill this. It's God's plan. If you remember last week's passage, it, he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die and he must be raised. It is absolutely necessary. This was always the plan. It was always the plan from the very beginning that Jesus would go to the cross for you and I and we would die. Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, he says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He knew it. This was always the plan. It was necessary. It must happen. As we said last week, that baby in the manger that we celebrate, he must die. He must suffer for you and me. It must happen. And Luke says, he describes... Uh, this exodus, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. And what is fantastic. Uh, uh, we're just going to look at this. If you're in Luke 9 right now, look at verse 51. This is a massive, uh, a big change in, in the, the gospel of Luke, Luke's account. Verse 51, what we read here is when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see from the rest of Luke, he does not turn away. He does not turn away from Jerusalem. He goes. He's not going to stop. It's, a, it's, a, it's the change in, uh, in Luke. Luke's kind of divided by that one verse because he's looking. He must accomplish this. It must happen for your sake and for my sake and for all God's people's sake. This must happen. And so he goes. And so this exodus, which is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what is this exodus? And this exodus... That Jesus is about to accomplish is the entirety of what Jesus is about to do. It is his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne. It includes what he's inaugurate, his kingdom, his rule, his reign, the gospel going out into the world, transforming life after life after life as the nations are discipled. It looks to, it sees the return of Christ, the concluding defeats of sin and death for eternity. In this new exodus, in this new exodus... Jesus is saving his people from sin and he's bringing them to himself to create a new covenant with them. It's this glorious picture of this new exodus and we see this in this majestic glory of his transfiguration. In this this exodus that will Jesus will accomplish will be at Jerusalem. And he accomplished it. It is finished. And we live in the time period when the finished work is done and it's being manifestly worked out. Now, after this, the disciples respond. But first, I want us just a quick look at verse 35. Jump down to verse 35. God the Father speaks. This is what verse 35 says. And a voice came out out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This may uh, cause some memory from Jesus' baptism back in Luke 3. Because this very similar thing happened when Jesus was baptized, came out of the water, God the Father again spoke audibly to everyone there. Spoke about Jesus being his beloved son. And we get this beautiful picture of the, our triune God, the Godhead. And no doubt as he's saying, this is my son. It echoes Psalm 2, which reads, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you hear the majesty and the, the, the sovereign description of the son, the Messiah, the chosen one, as God says here? Interesting enough, it is on the cross in Luke 23 that people will mock Jesus with this title. You're the chosen one of God. They will mock Jesus with that same description. You're the chosen one of God. Then let, let come down from the cross. But this phrase again emphasizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Exactly what Peter just confessed earlier in, in chapter 9. And it's a reference to Isaiah 42.1 which reads this. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will set, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And hopefully you can start hearing Luke 4 when Jesus was back in the synagogue of Nazareth and he reads Isaiah saying, the Holy Spirit is upon me. And that, that, that passage is fulfilled in your hearing. All of this is coming together. Jesus is the one. He is the Christ. He is the Christ, as Peter says. This is the one. And so we have this incredible experience of Jesus, the Son of God. We see his person, meaning that he is the Son of God. He is the chosen one. This is him who all your hope culminates in. This is him. We see his work, this new exodus of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and all it accomplishes. And we see his glory, that's, that's uh, his majesty emitting as this intense light. His person is assured. His work is assured. His glory is assured. And then, then we come to how the disciples respond. So jump back. Uh, and we'll see, they respond by beholding this glory of Christ. And we see that it makes an impact in them. It's not just, oh, that was it, and we leave for the week and come back and see the glory, uh, the glory again and leave and come back. But it changes them. So verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Maybe like you, my first impression reading this was, like, how many times do you guys fall asleep when you're praying with Jesus? How many times do you guys do this? I mean, if you remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times they fell asleep praying with Jesus. But then I, uh, I was recently reading through Daniel and it, it, it's recorded in Daniel that the glorious sight that Daniel saw, it caused him to fall asleep. So I was like, ah, maybe we'll give him some slack for falling asleep. But they, so they, as, as AJ was pointing out, they were asleep. And then when they awoke, they saw the glory of Jesus. They saw Moses and Elijah there. They witnessed the transfiguration, the transcendence of Jesus' character and his majesty Expressed as this intense light. In Psalm 104, and I like to bring in all these other passages because they show this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one our hope is in. This is the one. There's no one else. Psalm 104 describes God's glorious presence with this. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And you've got Jesus, the Son of God, right here with this intense light. Verse 33. And as the men were parting with him or from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. 
Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, which is always an interesting way to put it. He didn't know what he was talking about. But we see here that Moses and Elijah and Luke as this, they began to leave. It's coming to an end. This amazing experience is about to end. And then Peter began speaking, but not really know what he's talking about. But Peter understood what a special and majestic experience. He just woke up in like, wow, this is awesome. And Moses and Elijah are departing and it's about to end. And Peter sees that he knows this is coming. And so he says, this is good. I'm here, Jesus. How about I build a couple tents or a few tents for, for you guys? And this could be a, a good chance is referring to the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And if you remember, this feast is when the Jewish men, they would literally build a booth or a tent and then live in it for about a week. Because during that week, it was, it was all about remembering and celebrating God's provision for when they were in the wilderness and for hope and God's provision in the future. It's very similar to our Thanksgiving where we, we, we celebrate. We're very thankful for how God provided for the pilgrims, our, 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 our forebears. And then also kind of thankful for the present and the, the future as well. So that's kind of what the, it's loosely like the Feast of the Tabernacles. But so the, the whole key here is that Moses and Elijah, they were leaving. This was coming to an end. And Peter did not want this spiritual experience to end. And he was trying to prolong it. By building these tents. And if indeed Peter was talking about celebrating the Feast of Booths. Peter's basically like, hey, stop. Let's, let's let this go on for another seven days. Like this, let's, let's let this continue. This is really good. He didn't know what, he was, what to say. He didn't know what he was saying. But he did not want it to end. This mountaintop experience. And I want to pause for just one second here. Or more than one second. But pause for a moment. And do you ever feel like Peter? Not wanting a mountaintop experience. Uh, you're not wanting it to end or a certain feeling that's just so good and you don't want that to end. Peter did not want that to end at all. But as we will see as this passage continues, it is important for us to understand that following Christ is not about chasing after these experiences or feelings, but it's about chasing after Christ. And we can be easily misled to believe that following Jesus means one great experience after another, after another. And that we can be compelled to chase after certain experiences or emotions and even try to conjure these things up. It's almost like uh, social media, if I can use that for example, like Facebook or Instagram, where you can follow some people and they have fantastic picture after fantastic picture. And it's like their life is a not, never ending great event after great event after great event. And you can see that. And as you look at their, their profile and stuff like that, you can start to feel as if your life is void of any kind of meaning because it's far more mundane than what these people are just doing fantastic things. And we can be misled just like that as we follow Christ. We can start to think that, oh, it, it must be just one emotional, spiritual experience after another. But that's not what it is. But that's what Peter wanted. He wanted this to continue as if following Christ is both about and sustained by spiritual highs or mountaintop experiences. But that's not the case. That's not what it's about, nor are we sustained by that. Rather, following Jesus is about Jesus. And it is the Son of God himself who sustains us. It is beholding him that transforms us. And it's through his word, as we'll continue to look at, that we behold him. And it's through his word that sustains us. If we remember uh, back in Luke uh, 
4, I'm not sure what it says, Luke 3 maybe, when Jesus is being tempted by, by Satan, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and says, we do not live by bread alone, but by what? The very words of the living God. That's what we live by. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. He writes in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, let me continue this for just for a few seconds. Uh, consider Abraham. Consider the life of Abraham. And think of all the mighty experiences he had with the living God. God himself came, made a covenant with God. God himself came and reminded Abraham of the covenant multiple times. God himself came, visited Promising a son. God himself came sharing with Abraham about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God came testing God, uh, testing Abraham about sacrificing Isaac. And when we read this account of Abraham's life, because it's so condensed in Genesis, we can think that Abraham's life was one amazing experience after another amazing experience after another amazing experience. But what we don't realize, there was years in between these events, years in between these experiences. And it was not these experiences that maintained and sustained Abraham following God, not at all. It was God's promise. It was God's promises, his word that sustained Abraham through all these different tests. It was God's word that empowered and enabled Abraham to follow God. And so we have Peter. Who does not want this to end. And I can't really blame the guy. That would have been absolutely phenomenal. But he does not want that to end. But that is not what God's will is. In the last few verses here. We see that beholding Jesus. Is not uh, not about emotions or experiences. But it's about being transformed. Being changed. Listening to him. Following him. So verse 34. As he was saying these things. Being Peter. As Peter is saying. Hey don't leave. I'll make some tents. Let's go on for another seven days here. He says. Uh, it says. A cloud came. And overshadowed them. And they were afraid. As they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud. Saying. This is my son. My chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken. Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. And told no one. In those days. Anything. And what they had seen. And so as. As Peter wants to prolong this experience, a cloud comes. And we see that the God the Father, his voice audibly is heard from this cloud or within the midst of this cloud. And you may recall, and this is clear, coming from Exodus, when God's presence, God's glory was manifest as a cloud. You remember that as, as the Israelites left, it was by cloud, the presence of God that they were, they were led by during the day. If you remember, at one point, when they grumbled and complained about their food, God showed up in a cloud, upset, very upset. If you remember also that it was on, uh, on when Moses went on Mount Sinai, the cloud of God came, this glory, this presence of God. And so now you have the glory of God the Father joins this already insane experience with the majesty and glory of Jesus. Now God the Father comes in this cloud, and indeed, it is something to be afraid of. It is fearful, as we see the, the disciples were afraid. That word, it says, the cloud comes and overshadows them. That word for overshadow, we've already seen that in Luke. It was used by the angel Gabriel when he comes to young Mary, when he tells that Mary is going to conceive as a virgin. Gabriel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
You therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And so the power of the most high came and overshadowed Peter, James, and John. Whenever I see that, I think uh, we, we pray and we, we sing for, uh, for God's presence to come. And every single time in the Bible we see God's presence show up, men are absolutely frightened thinking they're about to die. So no matter how strong you and I think we are, we will melt in the presence of the living God. And then we have the voice of God the Father proclaims, This is my Son. My chosen one. And as we mentioned, it affirms Jesus as the Messiah. It affirms him and confirms him. Just like uh, he did at Jesus' baptism. And then the Almighty Father commands them. It's a command. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah King. Listen to him. Obey him. It's his word that's authority. Going back to what Peter says in Acts, when Peter uh, is preaching, when he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of the Holy Prophets long ago. Moses said, if you remember, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And this command to listen is not just simply hearing audible words. Obviously, that's not at all what that refers to. But rather keeping them, doing them, obeying them, changing your life in the light of them. And this command is immediately to the apostles, the three apostles there, but also extends to us. And we see, you'll see in the rest of Luke. And the rest of Luke, the last half, if that's not even a half, is a lot on Jesus teaching his disciples. It is full of Jesus teaching his disciples. But it's also a command to us. There's much to learn. We will never cease learning. We will never arrive completely. We need instruction. We need God's commands. It's the great commission. Make disciples. How? Baptize them in the name of the triune God and teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. It's discipleship. It's obedience. It's growth. Listen to him. It's what we saw in verse 26. The ones who are ashamed of Jesus and his words, Jesus will be ashamed of him when he returns. It's what we saw back in chapter 6, verse 46, when Jesus says, why call me Lord when you do not do what I tell you? And so it, it all connects. God the Father says, listen to him. And they're afraid when they hear this. And then it was all over and Jesus was found alone. And Luke adds that afterwards the disciples told no one. They told no one in those days. They possibly didn't tell anyone because they did not fully understand what was going on. What just happened? That they, they have a lot to learn as, as indicated by what God the Father says here about the work and the person of Jesus. But that only lasted for a little bit because they would tell everyone. As Luke says, in those days, it was in only in those days, it was temporary. Just like the commission we saw earlier in Luke 9 was temporary for the apostles at that time. Because they're about to go out. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, they're about to go out. And literally, as we see, I believe in Acts, someone, uh, I, I believe it's an official, describes them as a people who is up, like up changing the whole world. That they're affecting everything. In the, the grammar of the phrase, I want to make sure we see this, uh, what they had seen, that phrase or what they had seen, 
the grammar of it indicates in the past it's done, but the effects still linger. It is still impacting them. It didn't just in the past, but it has continued. They are changed because of it. They are completely impacted. In fact, back in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Peter in Second Peter will actually talk about the transfiguration. And like, remember this? Back in, this is Second Peter chapter 1. But they are changed. They beheld Jesus Christ and they are changed because, because of it. It affected how they thought of that. It affected how they lived after that. And this was even reinforced by God the Father saying, listen to him. And so it is with us. As we gaze upon Jesus through his word, we are affected and changed. Just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from the degree, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We are transformed you are transformed. Your kids are transformed. Your co-workers are transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord caused by the Spirit through the scriptures that the Spirit inspired and the Spirit illumines. It is why Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's why he writes in Ephesians 4, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's why Paul writes in, in Colossians 3, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The spirit of God transforms you as you gaze upon Christ in his word. And so we need to gaze and behold the face of Christ. To read his word, to meditate, think upon God's word, to sing his word, his, his, his word, his work as seen in his word together to obey his word. And we'll be transformed from one degree to another. It's a process. From one degree to another. It takes time. It's not going to be done completely at once. And so we become what we behold. We become what we worship. Do not cease beholding the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you feel like meaning in your daily life is lost, come and behold the face of Jesus Christ and how much he loves you, that he has a reason that he bought you with his blood. If you feel discouraged, come and behold the face of Jesus and let his strength and courage pour into you. If you feel anxious and stressed, come and behold the face of Jesus Christ it rests in his sovereign, gentle hands that upholds the world. If you feel hopeless, come and behold the face of Jesus and let springs of hope pour into your soul. Behold Christ and be changed into Christ. For God's glory transforms. Do you want to be changed? Is there stuff in your life that needs to be changed? Then behold the face of Christ in scripture and respond with obedience. Do you want to change your spouse? Do you want them to follow Christ? Do you want them to be less angry? Do you want them to be less self-centered? To be more supportive? Don't nag them, but present the face of Christ to them through his word in encouraging words and in truth and in action. Do you want your kids to follow Christ? Do you want them to be godly and less disobedient? Bring them before the face of Christ. 
in Scripture at church, in encouraging words from Scripture, in the truth of God's law, in family worship, in study of God's word, and in worship songs together. And do you want your brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church family, do you want them to grow, to overcome the sin that they struggle with, to be more focused on eternal matters and not to be distracted by more temporary pursuits that present the face of Christ in the truth of Scripture, encouraging and challenging them? And lastly, do you want your lost co-workers, friends, family members that we most likely will see in the next couple of weeks during Christmas, do you want lost family members to repent and turn to Christ and find salvation alone in Christ? Then bring them before the face of Jesus Christ as you lovingly share truth of Scripture with them. Jesus is glorious. He is majestic. He is the Son of God. He is the Chosen One. And He will return and He reigns now. If you have not repented from your sins and have not turned to Christ alone and trusting in Him for your salvation, the call for you this morning is to repent. Trust in the name of Jesus. And as Christians, the call is for us to behold the face of Christ, to gaze upon His face through His Word. And as we behold the face of Christ, His person, His work, His glory, we can go out assured tomorrow, assured of His promises, assured of His presence with us. So let's behold the glorious face of Jesus Christ.